Coming up on Stu Does America, entrepreneur and podcast host James Altucher talks to us about his controversial article regarding the future of New York City and how there isn't one. And Brad Palumbo uh, from the Foundation for Economic Education joins us to explain what the hell is going to happen insurance-wise to all these people who've had their property damaged and destroyed during the BLM riots. Be sure to watch us on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, tell all your family and friends, all that good stuff. It helps us defeat the evil algorithm robots. And keep listening to us on podcast. We'd love seeing your reviews and seeing your five-star ratings, which, if you are unaware, is the appropriate number of stars for this particular program. And consider a subscription to Blaze TV. Just head to blazetv.com slash stew. Be sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. I am seriously getting tired of the misinformation and straight-up falsehoods being spread all over by internet freaks and, well, the mainstream media, honestly. Uh, Let's get to the facts and do COVID conspiracies. Stu does America. Since the beginning of the coronavirus era, for some reason, the media has heaped praise on top of the big, fat head of Andrew Cuomo. This is bizarre considering he has had, of course, the worst results of any leader in the world when it comes to a COVID response. Also, it's a well-known fact that Andrew Cuomo is awful. .com. We had a little bit of an indication yesterday as to why the media loves him so much when Cuomo ran his mouth about President Trump. Quote, he better have an army if he thinks he's going to walk down the street in New York. New Yorkers don't want to have anything to do with him. He can't have enough bodyguards to walk through New York City. People don't want to have anything to do with him. No wonder the press loves Cuomo so much. He threatens the president publicly like they wish they could. Just be careful, President Trump. I will say, if Cuomo says he wants to bring you to a nursing home, run for your life. If you've been watching this show for a while, you know that Andrew Cuomo is intentionally undercounting the nursing home deaths in his state, period. You know that, of course, Andrew Cuomo is responsible for thousands of deaths because of his policies and his incompetence. And you know Andrew Cuomo is awful. Dot com. But while we spend the overwhelming part of our time picking apart what the left says, let's take a second to hit another claim. This has largely been circulated inside the conspiracy world, but you may have seen it online. So let's kind of go through it and sort it out. This week, the CDC quietly updated the covid number to admit that only six percent of all of the one hundred and fifty three thousand five hundred and four deaths recorded actually died from covid. That's nine thousand two hundred and ten deaths. The other ninety four percent had two to three other serious illnesses and the overwhelming majority were of advanced age. This is a common misunderstanding about how health statistics work. And when we pause and think for a second, we know all of this already. We hear the stat all the time about fifty thousand people dying of the flu. But we all know what that means, right? It's not like 50,000 college athletes are walking around totally healthy, catch the flu, and die. It's grandmas and grandpas. It's people with other serious ailments. They are somewhat unhealthy already, and then the flu comes around and pushes them over the edge. You know, those all always counted as flu deaths, and obviously they should count as flu deaths. I've used this analogy to explain this before, but it's worth revisiting. Let's say you're in a wheelchair and someone wheels you up to the edge of a cliff and then walks away. And then a huge gust of wind blows you to your painful painful demise below. Oh, my God, look at this poor guy. He's upside down. What is your cause of death in that situation? 
Well, if the guy didn't push you to the edge of the cliff, the wind wouldn't have killed you. If the guy pushed you to the edge and the wind never blew, you'd still be alive too. Both things worked in conjunction to end your life. This is incredibly common when it comes to death in America. The overwhelming majority of deaths in America have multiple causes. While this has been presented like some big government scam to inflate the numbers, it's just the normal way these things are recorded. It's totally boring and totally regular. To show that this isn't some new crazy idea uh, developed just for COVID, look at this study from Minnesota. It showed overall 68.9% of the 326,332 deaths from 1990 to 1998, way before COVID, had at least one non-underlying cause of death in addition to the underlying cause of death, i.e. had multiple causes. This study from Montana shows basically the same thing. 67.4% of deaths had two or more causes. And I have to say, uh, if you look closely at this, uh, man, life must have sucked for the 1.6% of people at the bottom there who had eight or more causes of death. Holy crap, what a nightmare. Now, the COVID percentages are a little bit higher. Instead of about 70% with multiple causes in normal circumstances, it's more like 90% in, with COVID. Why? Because it's hitting older people, as we know. Deaths with a single cause are usually more like a young, healthy person who crashes their car or commits suicide. The thing is, when we hear pre-existing conditions or chronic illness, understandably, we think of someone with cancer in the middle of a deep chemotherapy treatment. But it's not just massively serious things like that. It's stuff like obesity and diabetes, things you can live with for decades if you don't get hit by COVID. So how big are these groups? Well, the number of Americans dealing with chronic illness in America. <laughs> we are not a healthy country. I hate to break this to you. The number of, for chronic illness in America is <laughs> I just I mean, you know, this number is big because you walk around a mall or you walk around a beach and you just see everyone and they just don't look healthy. You know, chronic illness in America estimated at one hundred and fifty seven million that's basically half the population. You also have 54 million Americans over the age of 65. Now, there's a lot of crossover in those two groups, but you know you can see why it's a bit tricky to try to isolate the most vulnerable. We're all vulnerable! To turn it around the other way, think about it this way. If we calculate deaths like this tweet suggests, it's impossible for an obese person to die of COVID, or someone with diabetes to die of COVID, or someone with hypertension to die of COVID because the death certificate would also list hypertension or obesity. It wouldn't be counted under this argument. In effect, only completely healthy people would be able to die of COVID, which makes no sense at all. It's the exact opposite of everything we know about the disease. It's totally normal and natural to look at this stuff with real skepticism, especially when you see people like Nancy Pelosi, you know, walking around maskless inside of a hair salon that's closed for everybody else. Combine that with the fact that every scary statistic about COVID is used to excuse, you know, a lockdown of the economy until the year 2932, or at least until November 4th. And I can understand why people want to grasp on every bit of hope that they see on the Internet. But it's a totally logical, sensible, kind of boring, but correct position to simultaneously think that COVID really sucks and we can't shut down our economy and grind our lives to a halt. And, you know, look, we have what we have to do is remember the important things. What is really important here? Of course, the most important thing is blaming Andrew Cuomo for being awful. 
If coronavirus wasn't a big deal, then Andrew Cuomo is going to completely get away with his crimes against humanity. And we cannot let that stand. No. Instead, we have to start a new conspiracy that Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo invented the coronavirus in their garage while working on their Camaros. That I can get behind. And always remember, Andrew Cuomo is awful. Dot com. And Chris Cuomo is worse. Dot com. Our next guest wrote an article uh, entitled New York City is Dead Forever. Here's why. You may have read it considering it was everywhere, <laughs> literally everywhere. A bold statement, to be sure, and one that was uh, that was uh, caused quite a conversation. James Altucher, uh, an entrepreneur and host of the James Altucher Show podcast. Uh, James, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Stu, thanks for having me on the show. I always uh, like coming on the blaze and a uh, fan of the show. Oh, we really appreciate that. You know, I, one of the things I, I thought really m- had people connecting to your uh, your column was it felt like it really hurt you to write it. Like, I, I felt like there was real pain in this at some level. Did I read that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I live in New York. I have a business in New York, a storefront business. My kids go to school in New York. I'm a fourth generation New Yorker, I was born there. So for me, what really hurt me the most was that people seem to be in denial of the basic problems affecting, and these are really critical problems. Everyone was saying things like, hey, New York always comes back, or New York City's got grit. And But I was seeing things differently, and I wanted to express that this is a problem. We're, New York City, there's all, you know, the highest vacancies, apartment vacancies in history. The, the, the um, workers are leaving, you know, office buildings are only 5% full instead of 100% full. Uh, 3,000 restaurants minimum are never going to reopen. I mean, if they keep indoor di- dining closed, 95% of restaurants are going to go out of business. So this leads to lower tax revenues when there's higher deficits and then less they're going to have to fire police, teachers, EMTs, healthcare, uh, garbage collectors. There's garbage all over the streets now in New York City. Like everywhere you go, there's garbage. And these are problems that you can't just solve with grit. Yeah. You need money. Yeah, yeah right, right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting point. I mean, I know I was born in New York State as well. And there is that, that attitude, I think, is real at some level. But it doesn't cure everything. Um, I know... Um, Living in where we worked in New York City for for several years and there's a bit of a trade off right living there. There are incredibly great things to do there. The best restaurants, the best nightlife, all these great things, uh, the culture. But on the other side, it really is a hassle like it's it's, you know, stepping in slush puddles on the side of the road. It's it's going into the subway. It's dealing with cold temperatures. It's not an easy experience. And if you take away that upside, it makes sense that people are going to leave. Right. And think about it. What if 3000 restaurants? I mean, actually, that's a minimum. 3000 restaurants are already out of business. That means 100,000 employees will be unemployed. You know, they have to find new jobs. If more restaurants go out of business, that's even more people unemployed. So you're going to have kind of unrest, uneasiness. And then, you know, the, the subways, you mentioned that they're hard to deal with. Well, what if you don't have any transit authority? Because they themselves, the transit authority, announced they need a $12 billion bailout to survive. They're losing $200 million a week 
mm. on the subway system. So all of these things you mentioned, plus, you know, it used, it used to be the case all corporate opportunities for the young were in New York City or LA or San Francisco, but now companies are encouraging employees to go remote. And this is what's different. People say, oh, New York City always bounces back. Well, 10 years ago, let's say after the financial crisis, mm -hmm. the average bandwidth uh, was about two megabits per second from your home. Now it's like 40 megabits per second. So we can have these Zoom calls and meetings all day long. Like it turns out people are actually more productive from home. This is all not me making this. It's not an opinion. It's it's fact. And so companies, they realize, oh, I, we could stay just as productive. We could cut millions in costs by leasing less space in New York. And that's exactly what's happening. So again, the tax base goes down, more people leave. And it's not like they'll come back when there's a vaccine. That's what many people say. People have already left. They've already bought homes. Mm. Call any second tier city, including you're, you're right there in Dallas. I bet you real estate's going through the roof now, certainly in, in Austin, Denver, Boulder, Nashville, Miami, Philadelphia. Real estate's going through the roof because of New Yorkers and LA people and San Francisco people moving out of the first tier cities to the second tier cities. You, you make a point in the column, which I think is really interesting, is you didn't actually leave at the beginning of this. I have a friend who lives in New York City. He was actually traveling when all the shutdowns hit, and he never went back. He actually went uh, to, uh, to a different location, stayed there throughout the entire shutdown, and really still hasn't returned. Uh, but you actually stayed at the beginning, right? It wasn't yeah. until the crime sort of kicked in that b before you actually left. Yeah, I was there March, April, May, June. You know, starting around late May, I... Actually, I wanted to check it out with my kids. I, I thought it was good for them to go to the protests and understand and learn the, the issues. Mm -hmm. But then, as you said, there started to be, for various reasons, crime started to increase. And again, this is not just my opinion. Like, you know, shootings year over year are up something like 130%. Like, all this is easily Googleable. And the other day, two nights ago, I saw uh, 47th Street was just completely on fire. Somebody set all the garbage in the street, which there was a lot of garbage. Somebody set it all on fire. So, Jeez. and then one of the things I noticed was the protesters were starting to stay out past curfew and trying to break into residential or commercial places. I saw footage of people trying to break into the building. So that, I have five kids, that worried me a little. And I said, okay, we're not, I'm not giving up the apartment, um, but let's just stay someplace else for a few weeks and see what happens. And I've been going back and forth to, to New York, you know, during this period. Uh, if you've had some uh, pushback on the article. I know, um, you know, Seinfeld wrote this piece in, in the New York Times. And, you know, I like Jerry Seinfeld, but really he didn't really even attempt to disagree with your article. It was more of just a statement of New York attitude, basically. Like, we're really tough, so we're going to get through this. Um, which, you know, at some level I respect that New York attitude. But I, I didn't, I, he didn't seem to actually take on any of your points other than the fact that he doesn't like doing Zoom calls. Uh, I, when, what has been the, because the, uh, the, the aftermath of that and what did you think of his take? Well, you know, already before he wrote this, people were, people in New York City, there was a group of people who were incredibly angry at me. Like <laughs> I got thrown out of Facebook groups for New Yorkers and uh, people were just nonstop tweeting like, this guy must be from Iowa. Get him the hell out of New York City. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm born in New York. I kept saying, I'm born in New York. I say it in the article. And uh, nothing wrong with Iowa, by the way. Mm -hmm. But, and then, I thought it had died down finally. I had everybody like having a stance on this. I mean, something like 10 million people read it that first week. And then Monday morning I wake up and the next thing I know, 
Jerry Seinfeld, who's never written an article in his entire life, wrote an entire page of the New York Times, you know, about me, not even about the article. No. Like, he's like, I, w- I wouldn't want to be in the trenches with this guy. Like, and, and I'm like, hey, I didn't know you were a decorated combat veteran, Jerry. I'm sorry about that. But, but you know, but he may, he, he, I, I get it. Everyone says New York's got grit, but you have to understand at some point, Somebody has to pay doctors who work in the New York City hospitals. Somebody has to pay the police and has to pay to fix the subways and has to pay people to collect the garbage. And then if you have thousands of restaurants out of business, that's hundreds of thousands of employees fired who won't know what to do, who will have trouble eating. And you, not only that, you'll have you know all these people being, you know, there's a 20% unemployment rate in New York now, higher than just about ever, except for maybe the depression. And you know, a part of 400,000 people left New York City in March. So the vacancies are going to be huge. There's going to be so many bankruptcies. You know, so many of these people haven't paid their rent. One in four New Yorkers haven't paid rent since March. There's going to be so many bankruptcies, not just the wealthy, but like workers, middle class, wealthy. There's problems because you, you, you know, then it cycles because if you don't, if New York City can't take care of itself by paying for its many amazing services, as you said, what's the reason to go there? So tourism will go down, which triggers another spiral down, like tens of millions of tax revenues lost. Already Broadway shut down till at least spring. And that, you know, that feeds an entire, like Jerry Seinfeld said, oh, you know, poor thing, he can't go to a Broadway show. Let me tell you, I hate Broadway. I hate <laughs> Broadway shows. I don't wanna go to a Broadway show. But thousands of restaurants feed that ecosystem, hundreds of hotels, feed that ecosystem. What happens if they go all out of business? And who's gonna be so excited to say, hey, now's my chance to start my restaurant in New York. Right. You don't go to a place where everybody just went bankrupt. So it's it'll feed itself. And that's what I was worried about. And it, it still seemed like everyone was being in denial and I was frustrated. And I don't, I say in the article, I don't want New York City to be dead forever, but here's why. I guess I should have said, here's why it could be. But the reality is no one's facing these problems and it, and by the way, it's gotten a lot worse since I wrote the article. Mm. Like, I didn't even know de Blasio's already thinking of firing 22,000 city employees unless he raises $5 billion, which I, I don't, that's hard to raise $5 billion. It is, it is, you're right. Well, I think you definitely shook people awake. I, could, I would love to have you back on when you have a little bit more time because this is fascinating and I think you've really hit on something that we have yet to reckon with uh, in the middle of all this stuff. It's James Altucher. Uh, the James Altucher Show is the podcast. You can get him on Twitter at Jay Altucher uh, as well as the article. Make sure you read it. NYC is dead forever. Here's why. James, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, and, and Stu, I'll, I'll just mention, I've been talking to various mayoral candidates since the article and would be more than happy to come back and tell you what I've learned. Oh, I would love that would be great. James, I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Stu. All right. Back in a second. I take responsibility for trusting uh, the word of a neighborhood salon that I've been to over the years many times and that um, when they said well we're able to accommodate people one person at a time and that we can set up that time i trusted that as it turns out it was a setup so i take responsibility for falling for a setup and that's all i'm going to say on that 
What's amazing is that they, the media will actually be okay with that. They'll be okay with, you know what? That's all I'm going to say about that. Well, shouldn't we follow up? Well, I don't know. She said that's all she wanted to say about it, so we should probably leave her alone. This, there's all sorts of holes in the story. She seemingly said she had never been there before at one point. Then she said she's been there over the years. But here's the question I have. When, you, when she says, I trusted them that they could accommodate one person at a time, well, all these places could accommodate people. You're telling them they can't. If the left is saying you can't open. So whether they tell you they could accommodate one person at a time or not has nothing to do with whether you're allowed to go in there. Uh, and of course, while you're in there, there's no reason that you couldn't have been wearing a mask, certainly as you walked in and throughout the entire process. When I, you know, this, these luscious locks that you see right here, it's true, I get them cut. I get them cut, it's true. Uh, I would be breaking the rules maybe in California. However, I live in a state that has some sign of freedom uh, still remaining in it. So I go to a, uh, I go get my haircut. We're allowed to do that here. I don't know if that's like where you are, but that's what it's like here. We live in relatively normal status here in Texas. The exceptions being uh, bars uh, are not open and uh, large events. Outside of that, we do have a mask mandate uh, here in Texas. However, I, I don't, you know, I have yet to hear one, one singular story of anyone actually being fined under it by the state. Now, that's a little suspicious to me. It almost seems as if they're not actually fighting people. It strikes me as a point in, uh, I don't know, in the world of social media where every single time someone w walks into a store without a mask, I see it on YouTube or I see it on Twitter. It strikes me as if people were getting fined in this state, we'd hear a lot about it. We haven't heard word one. My guess is this is their way to sort of emphasize that they think it's important. And of course, uh, local establishments have put in their own uh, private mask mandates. So you got to wear the mask around, which kind of sucks. And but, you know, when I go to get my hair cut, you know, the person who cuts it uh, has a little sign up that says she'd like you to wear a mask. So I throw a mask on. I understand that's a big deal to a lot of people. Like a lot of people, it really bothers them. Uh, and if, that, if that's you, I, this is my rule kind of on this. If it's you and it bothers you, eh, don't wear it. If it doesn't bother you, I mean, it's, it's an easy thing for me to do. It doesn't bother me. So I throw the thing on. I don't think it's a big deal. If I'm outside, I don't throw it on because it doesn't do anything outside. Uh, you know, like there's a, there's a new study that's out. Uh, you know, there's been several studies that show that it has some improvement. We talked about this on radio. I won't go bore you with all the details on it. Uh, but it is fascinating to see this whole, this whole thing play out with Pelosi, where she is actually going to get away with this by just saying, that's all I'm going to say about on, the, on this matter. It's all I'm going to talk about it. Well, th th it's not up to you. You know, it's certainly not up to any conservative whenever they get in trouble. They're asked about it constantly for the rest of their lives. We're still asking people about things they did in like 1985. But Nancy Pelosi, oh, well, she just decided she wanted a haircut. And so what? She got caught. Uh, don't ask her about it again. Shut up. OK, you got it, Miss Nancy. We're so sorry. It's really unbelievable. Tucker Carlson uh, had on the salon owner who seemingly, I mean, she knew this was going to happen. She did intentionally leak this video because she was pissed off she couldn't open up her salon. I understand it. I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would want to go back to, uh, you know, I can understand being a little skeptical if you're trying to, uh, I don't know, that, you know, as a business owner that you want to do this, but she was fed up. She was honestly fed up with this. Uh, I will say this, uh, Tucker Carlson, who's a big, you know, big cable news star, obviously, at this point, I don't always agree with him on every single policy, but... <laughs> He does this thing and he does it really well, which is he asks things that are obviously dumb 
and he says them with a really straight face and sets up the person to answer them. He does that like a master in this clip. Watch. Nancy Pelosi claims on camera that you orchestrated a, quote, setup to entrap her into getting her hair blown out without a mask. Did you? <laughs> no. Absolutely not. You know, this isn't even political. I mean, she's been coming in there. It's the fact that she actually came in and <laughs> didn't have a mask on. And I just thought about, you know, my staff and people not being able to work and make money and provide for their families. And if she's in there comfortably without a mask and feeling safe, then why are we shut down? Why am I not able to have clients come in? I love that question. Did she was there a conspiracy to 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 entrap her to get her hair blown out without wearing a mask? <laughs> you know, it's a no, that was not how it went. So, I mean, I, look, it's good to see that Nancy Pelosi gets caught doing something. She really is terrible. In fact, I would say she uh, Nancy Pelosi sucks. Uh, so uh, Nancy Pelosi sucks pen dot com. Uh, you may be familiar with it. Uh, I'm just amazed that this has gone off the way that it has. It's it's. It's really incredible. Um, let me, let's see, what should we do here? Let me give you some good news here. Let me give you a little good news. And again, good news in the coronavirus era, you put a little asterisk next, next to it because, eh, is it good news? Well, we had the lowest number of new uh, unemployment claims this week uh, of, since the COVID-19 thing really kicked in, 881,000. Now, I will say it's three or four times the rate that we were getting before COVID. So it's still not good, but it's way down from the multiple millions we were getting. In fact, this is the first time I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is the first time we've seen it under 1 million. So it is going in the right direction. This is a big situation when it comes to the, uh, not only the economy and, and how, how we're all dealing with our jobs and all the craziness that's going on there, but also the election. I've said this since the beginning. I think, you know, I, I hesitate to say something like this, but I, I feel like the COVID thing is the thing that the election will essentially turn on. Um, the reason why I say I'm hesitant to say it is because I don't want to tempt fate to give us another issue bigger than the coronavirus. I don't want another one. Please, no more. No more issues. I mean, half, now we have cities on fire. God only knows what else is going to happen. But it's been my opinion generally throughout this thing that if the economy can rage back and get going, and um, which it's done some of that, maybe it's we maybe picked up half the jobs that were lost so far. If we can get back that get, get that up to to even or you know 95 percent of what we had, you got to believe Trump has a good chance of winning this election uh, because uh, people will, I think, correctly see it as a a massively terrible bump in the road. Essentially, if we get a vaccine, this thing starts turning around. Who knows what could happen? Now, the vaccine's not going to really be able to kick in until um, after the election, most likely. But the economy, if, if the economy predicts this is going to work, usually things go well. I mean, the Dow had a bad day today, but it's been very, very good. The, the markets have been very, very good. Um, and I think that's part, part of the reason why um, odds makers in Vegas and you're seeing a lot of this in betting markets as well, see Trump as basically either uh, even or a slight favorite. In the betting markets. Now, that's different than what you're seeing in the polls right now. Uh, we went through that yesterday. So I give you a little kind of a, maybe if you're a Trump fan, a little bit of the bad news yesterday, a little bit of the better news today. Trump definitely has a chance to win this election. I have said, been saying it since the beginning. Despite the way the polls look, you have to step back from that just a little bit. And you need to look at this and say, OK, well, there's still big events that are coming. You've got three debates coming. 
You've got, uh, you know, Biden is going to fall on his face 20, 30 more times. You've got that coming up. You've got the potential of the economy and the coronavirus. But let me give you one quick thing to look for here as we go forward. Right now, we are on the last gasps, the last fumes of the giant infusion of government money that came in uh, with the CARES Act. And, and, you know, remember phase one, phase two, phase two and a half, phase three. I think we're on phase four or five now where they were going to dump money into the economy and prop it up. And like normally, obviously, I am completely against that. I think in the coronavirus era, considering we told people you're not allowed to go to work anymore. It makes sense that there would be some sort of government uh, safety net there. That safety net is running out. It's running. It's already run out for you. If you're on unemployment, you probably know this already. The, the bonus is already gone that they were giving you for unemployment. You probably also realize uh, that for if you're a company, you're, you're, this is starting to, to, to evaporate. Uh, American Airlines and all these uh, big airlines are, say, are announcing tens of thousands of furloughs. It's because all this money's running out. Now, this could be easily solved. Certainly, uh, it's a blip on the radar as far as our spending goes to be able to to uh, to lengthen these these uh, different uh, uh, problems and or excuse me, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Programs. Oh, that was weird. Uh, to lengthen these programs, it, it's it's not a big deal, right? The thing is, you need the left to come along. You need Democrats to say yes to it. It can't be something that Donald Trump can do by himself. It can't be something that Republicans can do by themselves. So if you're a if you're a Democrat and you're sitting here saying we can either go along, help out the American people who we've told can't go to work um, and give them the money that was basically promised at the beginning of this or or you can do nothing. You can act as if the Republicans are asking for crazy things, not vote to approve these programs and see if the economy uh, tanks for just a couple of months until you get control. And then you win the election and then you can go on from there. I, I started the segment with Nancy Pelosi. Um, do you think Nancy Pelosi is above that? So give me a moment to let that one settle in, marinate for a second. Ask yourself that question. Do you think Nancy Pelosi's above destroying the economy for a couple of months to gain more power? Does that sound like that's out of character for her? Remember, this basically comes down to Nancy Pelosi. If Nancy Pelosi says, "Okay, we're going to go ahead and and get this money to these companies and these people, she can do it. But she can also sit back, watch the economy really hurt, watch people really hurt because of decisions made by government and, you know, let Trump have to win an election where the economy is down from where it is now. That's a real possibility if they don't pass something. And I just don't see Nancy Pelosi as a person who puts the country above her own power. Do you? I mean, watch her watch her walk through that hair salon and you tell me that this is a person who's going to vote for more money to go to the American people when she thinks it might help her in an election. I think she's going to block this. And if she does that, these big, uh, the airlines are going to shed jobs like you can't imagine. Uh, these companies are going to go out of business. Tens of thousands of businesses will go out of business. People who have unemployment will not have enough money, not only to pay their rent and to pay you know, their grocery bills, but also any uh, dis- disposable income is going to be gone. So what happens to these companies? They can create a, uh, they kind of have an easy, uh, ready-to-made uh, economic disaster right in front of them if they don't approve this this money. And I just don't I just don't see Nancy Pelosi unless she gets some some sort of incredible giveaway as part of this package. I don't see her doing anything about it.
So then you're at that point where do you give her some crazy thing she's asking for? Or do you wait and, and take your chances? Maybe you can convince the American people, hey, Pelosi, stop this. Um, but, you know, you're not going to get any help from the media doing that. This is going to be a tough one. <laughs> this is a narrow walkway. If you're if you want Donald Trump to win, you have a narrow walkway to victory here. It's not going to be easy. As, as bad as Joe Biden is, this is not an easy task. We're back in a second. My next guest is a fellow with the Foundation for Economic Education, as well as a contributor to the Washington Examiner, Brad Palumbo. Thanks so much for coming on back on the program, Brad. Appreciate it, man. Hey. Um, so uh, you wrote a piece. It does insurance cover rioting and looting damage. Either way, it's disastrous. And I have to say, like, I had heard this argument from the left over and over again. They keep making it, which is, look, yeah, you know, they burned down some buildings. It's just property and everybody's going to be insured. And he thought it was a terrible argument, but didn't really question whether it was true or not. When you look into it, I mean, insurance probably isn't going to cover this, is it? Well, it's almost beside the question whether insurance will cover this, because, Stu, I, I, I know that you probably have health insurance, but you're not OK with me punching you in the face just <laughs> because you uh, have your premiums paid up. So... Actually, in many cases for big companies, it will be covered, rioting and looting, but a lot of small businesses will be out of luck. It won't be covered in their policies. And so you're right, it's gonna be a real issue. But I also, I almost don't wanna concede the point to the left that even when it is covered, Guess what? That's still really bad. <laughs> right, it's true. I mean, I, that's a secondary argument. So let's start, but let's start with the main one. You're right. This is just freaking wrong. I don't care if I get all the money back and you build me back a nice new building and you hand me another $20,000 on top of it. It's not okay to go and burn my building down. And the, the fact that the argument is whether eventually it will be rebuilt at no cost is completely a sideshow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this isn't how life works. These left-wing activists and authors who are making this argument probably have home insurance. But if I burned down their house, they still wouldn't love that, something no. tells me. That, that, that they wouldn't be too thrilled about that. So I find it a ridiculous argument on its face because even if you have the most luxurious insurance policy in the world, having your store burned down still entails massive inconveniences and costs and delays in sales and lost revenue. So it's still a big problem. Yeah, you, you mentioned the left-wing writers. There's there's kind of a somewhat famous interview you also wrote, wrote about in defense of looting that, that went on NPR. And look, I, I'm always willing to hear crazy viewpoints. I don't mind hearing them. Um, let me give you a quote from your uh, from your story and from the uh, uh, the interview itself. Uh, when I use the word looting, I mean the max mass expropriation of property, mass shoplifting during a moment of upheaval or riot. That's the thing I'm defending. I'm not defending any situation in which the property is stolen by force. Uh, looting is taking those things that would otherwise be commodified and controlled and sharing them for free. I love this line. Looting demonstrates that without police, without state oppression, we can have things for free. Well, you can only have them for free because I worked my ass off to get them, and now you're stealing them from me or destroying them. It's so insane. It's kind of funny, but then it's actually really evil when you think about it. I mean, 
didn't you just know if we got rid of police and allowed anarchy, everyone could have everything for free? <laughs> no, but of course you can't. There's no such thing as free. And looting imposed costs on individuals, but it also imposed costs on communities, right? You're, you're going to have places like Minneapolis. They're going to bear the scars of this economic damage from rioting for literal decades will chase economic opportunity out of their community. It will cause a decrease in tax revenue. It will cause uh, spiking insurance rates. So you, there's no such thing as free. And you're literally hurting people and destroying their lives and their livelihoods when you're just defending looting and rioting. So it's insane that we even have to have this conversation, Stu. I mean, it's more of, and it's more than just the economic costs and property. Like you, you, you have a video in your piece of a woman who's describing the aftermath of these riots. I think it was in Minneapolis, and she's talking about how they've burned down every store she goes to. She doesn't have. There's no bus service now. She can't go anywhere. They've burned down basically her entire neighborhood. Uh, and I know, like when you're, I know as a kid, like there are certain stores that I identify as part of my neighborhood is part of my childhood. You've destroyed these people's lives. These, these, everything that they want to do on a daily basis has now been torn away from them. And for what? What we have seen here is we have not, as far as I know, I could be maybe update me on this, uh, Brad. I don't think we solved the racism thing yet. I think it still pretty much exists, unfortunately. Uh, and, you know, you, you look at this and it's like, what has happened? We had a person who was, who was murdered by police uh, with George Floyd. And since then, dozens and dozens of people have paid with their lives for what? For what? For to, to create awareness that, you know, police, that people who have been charged with murder should not murder? I, I don't even, I, it's hard to even understand and trace this back to a coherent idea. Right. If anything, it's been extremely counterproductive. I mean, after George Floyd's death, everyone across the ideological spectrum was talking about reforms, right? Whether it's banning chokeholds or eliminating no-knock warrants or reforming qualified immunity, right? We were having these policy conversations. Those have all been sabotaged by the looting, destruction, riots, and unrest because, you know, studies show they hurt the cause and public opinion. And more importantly, when you have cities burning, we can't have a nuanced policy debate. So that's a problem right there. But honestly, I'm sympathetic to criminal justice reform, right? I'm a libertarian-leaning conservative. I'm all about it. But when you have 15 people, minimum, who have been killed in the George Floyd riots, that's a problem much more pressing in and of itself than debating qualified immunity or police shootings even. So it, it's a seriously sticky situation, and they're making it exponentially worse with every light, every store they burn down and every shop they ransack. I want to get to, uh, and you're totally right on that, uh, I want to get to uh, the um, the insurance part of this as well, because you're right, the moral argument outweighs this completely. But I will say, I... You know, you read a lot of articles and uh, you feel like at this point, I feel like I'm, I know what everything is going to say because we just read, you know, you're reading this stuff every time. And I really kind of in my head thought, yeah, I mean, their business is burned down. It'll suck, but at least it'll be rebuilt with the insurance money. You wrote about this. Beckett Adams wrote about this as well, um, talking about how, you know, this in, the insurance probably isn't going to pay for it. Now, Beckett was a little bit less kind than you were. He, his first line was, no, you idiots, insurance won't even begin to cover the short, <laughs> short and long-term damage inflicted by the riots. I honestly kind of thought that they would, but like, this is amazing. You write about this. Most policies will limit reimbursement to twenty-five to 50000 but con- contractors are submitting bids of two to 300000 uh, One day after rioters uh, destroyed Sports Dome uh, retail complex in St. Paul, a construction crew ca- came 
came in, hired by the city and knocked it down because it was unstable. Then the city presented the property owners with a $140,000 bill to pay for the destruction. This is going to absolutely destroy these people's lives. There is no rebuilding. This isn't just a a timeout uh, from their livelihood. This is destruction of that livelihood. Right. Well, here's two simple statistics that really, for me, just end this argument plain and simple. 70% of businesses are underinsured, so they could find themselves in situations like you just described. But 40% of small businesses have no insurance at all, right? Because it's so expensive and they're running on such thin margins and some landlords don't require it. And it's not as if rioters and black clad Antifa people were inquiring as to what their insurance policies were before they were starting fires and smashing windows. So you have many business owners who've come out, many minority business owners and immigrants as well, who've come out and talked about how insurance can't help them. Their dreams are destroyed. And ironically enough, it's all coming in the name of social justice. Um, I generally, uh, I think, Brad, I think you're the same way, find the moral arguments here uh, more compelling. But of course, politics is part of this as well. It seems like the left, in their internal polling, Biden campaign has certainly seen that a bunch of buildings being burned down and riots in the street is not helping them in the polls. You've seen Biden and Harris both be active now trying to come out and say, we swear we don't want any of this, even though we've been approving it for weeks and weeks and weeks. How do you see this playing out? Is this something that actually helps Trump in the election? Do you, or do you think that, it, that that's being overblown? I think it does help Trump in the election, because on one side, you have very wishy-washy. I mean, Biden finally came out and made strong statements against rioting and looting the other day, but he didn't mention Antifa or Black Lives Matter by name. Kamala Harris literally fundraised the bail money for rioters. So you do have this dichotomy of Trump as a, a running on law and order and cities are in chaos under Democrat mayors. That pushes people. I mean, the the woke online left has a stance on this issue that's just so detached from reality. I mean, even moderate Democrats or just everyday people on the street who aren't super political think looting and rioting is insane and wrong. So if the Democrats and and the left more broadly allow this to become a red versus blue issue, they're going to lose big on that one. Brad Palumbo is fellow with the Foundation of Economic Education and contributor to The Washington Examiner. Brad, what's the best place for people to find you? Twitter, Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. Thanks, Stu. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Back in a second. We take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And sadly, the domestic enemies to our voting system and our honoring our Constitution uh, are right at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Enemies of the state. The Stu Does America, Nancy Pelosi Sucks commemorative pen is back in stock. Proudly display your disappointment in the Speaker of the House and order yours today at nancypelosisuckspen.com. She really is awful, um, almost as awful as Andrew Cuomo. There's such an interesting dynamic going on. With I've noticed with my products uh, in the merch store, it's like Nancy Pelosi sucks. Andrew Cuomo is awful. Chris Cuomo is worse. I don't really have a lot of positive things to say about these people. I really should come up with something nice. But not today. NancyPelosiSucksPen.com. Make sure to check that out. And if you uh, happen to be getting your uh, hair done in an illicit um, uh, salon. I mean, you know what? We should really send one of these pens to this salon. 
Can we do that? Can we mail them a few pens so they have something to write with uh, as they... <laughs> Because <laughs> they need it. Uh, clearly do. Uh, Studos merch is the place where all the stuff lives. You can always get that. Senility now, Kamala Namala, all sorts of stuff up there. Pick it up, and we'll see you tomorrow.